Hello, folks. You're listening to the Vintage Life Society podcast. I'm your host, Michael Hennessy. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode titled, Let's Have Another Cup of Coffee. Once upon a time, say 80 or more years ago, if you wanted to grab a cup of coffee on the go, you'd find the nearest diner, hash house, or juke joint, walk in, sit down, place your order, and you'd be given a ceramic mug with a saucer and a spoon. Cream and sugar would be set down in front of you, and it would cost you a dime. And you'd have bought yourself about 15 minutes off your feet, or at least until the proprietor gave you that inquisitive look for the fourth time that meant, if you ain't gonna order something, then drink up and clear out, pal. The point behind all this is to kind of give you the idea that eating out in the early 20th century was a slightly different experience than we know today. The 1920s ushered in a, a new kind of restaurant industry. During Prohibition, liquor-based profits in restaurants from the sale of wine and alcohol vanished, so the emphasis moved to low-price, high-volume food service. The gilded Edwardian age of luxurious fine dining faded into a seemingly endless variety of luncheonettes, sandwich shops, diners, and cafeterias. Women replaced men at servers or tables. The first restaurant chains started, and more and more people ate out at least once or twice per week. And when they did, they clamored for simple, home-style, American fare. But what was that? And what were these places like? What kind of food did they offer? Let's delve deeper into how and where people ate and drank on the go in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. So pour yourself a cup of java and get comfortable. Just around the corner, there's a rainbow in the sky. So let's have another cup of coffee. Let's have another piece of pie. Trouble's just a bubble, and the clouds will soon roll by. So let's have another cup of coffee, and let's have another piece of pie. Let a smile be your umbrella, for it's just an April shower. Even John D. Rockefeller is looking for the silver lining. Mr. Herbert Hoover says that now's the time to buy. So let's have another cup of coffee, and let's have another piece of pie. Let's say you were on your way to work, or to keep a business appointment, or to go shopping, and you wanted to stop off somewhere for a bite to eat. If you lived in a small town, or you were in the immediate neighborhood of your own city, you probably knew all the diners and the coffee shops, lunchrooms, and restaurants in the area. And you probably knew the owner, or the manager, at least by sight. For many urban dwellers in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, the local diner, restaurant, or cafe was almost an extended living space, the parlor or social living room that they didn't really have in their own tiny apartments. Having a conversation with and getting to know the proprietor of a restaurant could kind of get you places too. Becoming a regular customer could get you some additional perks. The owner might offer you a coffee refill on the house or turn a blind eye to the fact that you're in that booth for the past two and a half hours looking at the want ads. You might have a particular preference, a favorite spot, or even a favorite seat at the counter, or a favorite table at a restaurant. Relationships like this between regular patrons and staff were pretty commonplace. We always sit at our favorite table. We have an understanding with Anthony, the maitre d', for example. You might also exchange other pleasantries with friends and neighbors by saying something like, oh yes, we always prefer going to Luigi's for nights out. You know that little place on 14th Street with the green awning? 
or someone had the nerve to snag my seat at the lunch counter this afternoon, and I was only three and a half minutes late getting there, too. Or even something like, I'd rather not go to Johnny's if you don't mind. I think the fellow behind the counter there tries to get a little too friendly. During the daytime hours, you had your choice of cafes, coffee houses, luncheonettes, diners, automats, soda fountains, drugstore counters, and all kinds of places to dine on the cheap. Places like these could be found on just about every other street corner in any major city and along every major highway across America. These are primarily comfort food establishments, typically run by and serving working-class Americans. Many of these establishments are open 24 hours a day, especially in urban areas and near major manufacturing hubs where the workforce shifts continued both day and night. Most restaurants were family-run establishments, and often the family would live above the restaurant itself. Word-of-mouth reputation was predominant, but some placed ads in newspapers and telephone directories. Standard practice was to have printed matchbooks with the restaurant name, phone number, and a brief slogan in a glass bowl on a counter at the entrance. Keep a few of these in your pocket or your purse, and it'll greatly enhance your authentic 1930s and 40s historic impression. Working-class Americans counted on the luncheonette, the commissary, or the neighborhood diner as a place to get a hot meal, at least one, especially during the cold winter months and during the Depression. According to the 1940 U.S. Census, most people who lived in urban environments worked in the manufacturing or the retail trades. Sales staff, office workers, secretaries, all would converge on the nearest luncheonette during their precious lunch hour, in some cases only half an hour, and it was as much a social scene as a necessity. In more rural areas, the neighborhood diner, or kitchen, was a place to get a hot meal when away from home. Along nearly every highway and byway, these roadside kitchens catered to the hungry traveler, traveling salesmen most of the year, but often families on the road during the vacation season, too. Unfortunately, a good number of these places would be segregated or restricted. Restricted was a term used to exclude blacks and people of color from an establishment, but this restriction often also applied to Jews, Hispanics, and even white Catholic immigrants like Irish and Italians. Here's what would typically happen. A black person would walk into a restaurant and was ignored completely, or was asked to leave, or no one took his order, or he was offered a seat in the kitchen, or his food never arrived, or it had been adulterated, or his check was tripled. All of these were common experiences for black Americans for the majority of the 20th century. The Negro Motorist Green Book, more popularly known as the Green Book, was first published in 1936 as a guide to help African-American motorists locate businesses like restaurants and motels and hotels, but also barbershops, gas stations, and, and other places that would accept them as customers. It was an extremely popular and very helpful resource covering the metropolitan New York City area at first, and then expanding to cover all 48 states from 1949 through 1959. It ceased publication after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. But the kind of food you'd expect to find at these diners and lunchrooms and drugstore cafes was usually considered what was called kind of standard American fare, or meat and three meaning a meat-based main dish along with three side dishes, typically a potato-based dish, a vegetable, and a roll or a slice of bread. 
Many establishments offered set lunch and dinner combinations. And in a lot of cases, these are called blue plate specials. The actual origin of the term blue plate special is a little unclear, but it was in widespread use starting in the late 1920s. The blue plate special was always affordable and was a set meal served strictly with no substitutions allowed. Variations could include options like meatloaf with mashed potato, peas, and a dinner roll with butter, or a chicken fried steak with onions and gravy, french fries, and string beans. Most of these specials included your choice of beverage between coffee, tea, milk, or tomato juice included in the price. And in the mid-1930s, that price could be between 35 and 75 cents, depending on where you were in the country. These specials would often change up on a daily basis, providing their regular customers with some variety and to encourage return business. A gem of my vintage ephemera collection is a booklet titled How to Make Money with Toast, and it was printed by the Toastmaster Company in 1937 and offered diner, lunchroom owners, and drugstore counters more than 150 toast-based recipes, um, offered advice on pricing, and even on making garnishes, stating that these are best when tasteful, colorful, and if possible, edible, and then provided potential customers with a dazzling array of multiple toast-making machines, each with toast-per-minute calculations and awe-inducing features like an excellent use for stale bread or shuts off electrical current when it's not actually toasting, and my personal favorite, doesn't heat the room. This little booklet also provides excellent insight into the typical fare one might expect at a lunchroom or a diner of the mid to late 1930s. While burgers and hot dogs were always an option, most of these recipes were created with mass production efficiency in mind. Things like sloppy joes, tomato sauce, and ground leftovers on toast, uh, chili on toast, toasted cheese sandwiches, toasted pimento cheese sandwich with, with olive paste, uh, creamed or hashed meats on toast as an open face or a triple-decker sandwich. Add a few slices of toast to any dish and up the check by 10 or 15 cents. It's pure profit. During the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the drugstore counter, soda fountain, and kind of milk bar became increasingly popular, especially with the teenage and the collegiate crowd. There were so many health problems in America in the early 20th century, and the Depression years aggravated many of these problems further, not the least of which was the lack of affordable milk for infants and children. There was a push in 1934 by the U.S. government, during the Roosevelt administration, to improve public health. One of these efforts was to actively promote eating ice cream and drinking milk as a way of increasing calcium intake in the population. Milk was promoted by nutritionists and manufacturers as the perfect food, and by 1940, the average American was drinking 744 glasses of milk per year. There were other health food options through the 1920s and 1930s. There was an active healthy lifestyle movement, too. Vegetarian restaurants existed in some of the major cities, but vegetarianism itself was not as commonplace a practice as it is today. American popular culture would not really fully embrace vegetarianism on a broader scale until the mid-1960s. Lastly, I want to briefly touch on ethnic restaurants and their impact on American dining. There's far too much history to convey in any single podcast, so I'll just keep it to a few basics, uh, mostly focused during the time period we're talking about, the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. American immigration 
during the early 20th century brought a rich variety of cuisines from so many countries and ethnicities. Every major city had its ethnic neighborhoods populated with clusters of immigrants living in close proximity to each other. Uh, the Polish and German districts of Chicago, the Italian and Hungarian neighborhoods of New York City, uh, the Japanese, Chinese, and Filipino districts of San Francisco and Seattle, just to mention a few. These ethnic groups often established their own restaurants, providing familiar cuisine to their fellow immigrant neighbors, as well as introducing new flavors and foods to others. Some of the earliest offerings to the American table included uh, the hamburger and the frankfurter with sauerkraut, very German and very Polish, macaroni and pizza, Italian, chow mein, dim sum, and soy sauce, all Asian. All of these foods were available to most Americans by the 1920s, and many of these dishes were greatly altered or even invented to conform to an expected American palate. The hot dog, or frankfurter, introduced by German immigrants in the 1880s, became so popular by the 1920s that it became a nationally recognized all-American food. Well, I hope this brief overview has whet your appetite for more. If you like what you heard and you want to learn more about reenacting the details of life in the early to mid-20th century, then I encourage you to join the Vintage Life Society. Go to DejaVuIndustries.com to learn more and subscribe to our email list for details on when membership in the VLS is open. I also want to give special thanks to Jan Whitaker's blog, Restauranting Through History, which provided extremely relevant details relating to some of the content of this podcast. I strongly encourage you to visit her website, restaurant-ing-throughhistory.com. And I hope you'll join me again for next week's podcast entitled, I Want a Hat with Cherries. In that episode, I'll share some of the written and unwritten rules of hat-wearing etiquette during the early 20th century. How to wear a hat, when to wear one, and when to take it off. Until then, thanks again for listening to the Vintage Life Society podcast. I'm your host, Michael Hennessy. See you when. Let a smile be your umbrella 
for it's just an April shower. Even John D. Rockefeller is looking for the silver lining. Mr. Herbert Hoover says that now's the time to buy. So let's have another cup of coffee and let's have another piece of pie. 